But we're reading tonight from we're reading tonight from Joel. We're in chapter two, and we're beginning tonight at verse twenty-eight. Joel, chapter two, verse twenty-eight. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. For behold, in those days and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem... I will also gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. And they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Yea, and what have I to do with... Yea, and what have ye to do with me, O Tyre and Zidon, and all the coasts of Palestine? Will ye render me a recompense? And if ye recompense me swiftly and speedily, will I return your recompense upon your own head? Because ye have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried into your temples my goodly pleasant things. The children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have ye sold unto the Grecians, that you might remove them far from their border. Behold, I will raise them out of the place whither you have sold them, and will return your recompense upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the children of Judah, and they shall sell them to the Sabaeans, to a people far off, for the Lord hath spoken it. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get ye down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near, in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people. And the strength 
of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy and there shall be strangers. There shall no strangers pass through here anymore. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine and hills shall flow with milk and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall be a desolation and Eden shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. Amen. You will have noticed there that it tells us that God is our refuge. God is our refuge, our stronghold. You've heard through Joel how we've uh, looked at different aspects of it. And tonight we are on the third and final uh, part. And certainly this could be preached on for a year or more. Joel, and it is, uh, it is some benefit to go through a book much more quickly to enable us to have uh, a clearer overview. Uh, so it's been, uh, it's been useful, it's been useful and beneficial to me in preparation. So we, we're going to look at this tonight and really with Joel, as Andy referenced last time, uh, these, these awkward books, if you like, the ones that are not, not maybe as, as easy to interpret. Well, I find that using the same approach as I did through Revelation when I went through that back in Liverpool, which was rather than see Revelation as a, a compendium of puzzles and mysteries uh, which are there to challenge us, to solve and try to find things in the paper uh, that matches something in Revelation. Rather, it's beneficial to stand back from books like Revelation and try to see the major themes that are intended to be conveyed, the major themes. And so I found, uh, I found that beneficial in Revelation, and, and so it is with Joel. The, the themes we've looked at so far, well, we started with the rebuke of God towards his own people. God rebukes his own people for their sin. He then tells them that the only solution to their sin is repentance. And so he describes through the prophet the nature of repentance and the requirement, the requirement of it in order for them to receive God's blessing. And if you weren't here last week, we, we, uh, the week before when I was here, 
uh, we spoke about how God uh, not only restores, but restores abundantly. Restores excessively, you might like to say. And that, that's his habit. And so that promise is held out. And, well, tonight we'll look a bit more at this theme of the day of the Lord, um, what that is. And perhaps I can persuade you that this day of the Lord can mean a number of things. We, we might say it's an individual event. We might say it's a period. And um, I'm not the only one to think that the, the golden age, if you like, that we are in at the moment, the gospel age, is itself a kind of protracted day of the Lord. So when we thought about locusts, the locust plague, the destruction of the locusts and God's deliverance, when we look in a moment about the, the pouring out of God's spirit on all kinds of people, when we think of our warfare, when we think of the last judgment, we can certainly mark out individual events and describe them as the day of the Lord. This is what the Bible does. But another way to look at this is that all these things throughout the scriptures, throughout this age we live in, up to the end, these are all different aspects of one overriding theological theme, which is the day of the Lord. The Lord coming in blessing or in judgment. Well, I said to you, I said to you a few weeks ago, it reminded you that judgment begins in the house of God, which is why uh, I use the scriptures to encourage you, encourage myself uh, to be keen with our self-examination. I encourage you to see if there is any, you know, anything that needs repenting of. So tonight we'll, we'll, look, we'll look at this idea primarily of God as our refuge and some other, some other themes as well. And I want to try and show you that Joel itself is not, is not there for us to so much predict events. It's not there so we know what's coming. It's not, that's not the type of, that's not the intention anyway. It's not predicting really plagues or the Holy Spirit coming or anything. It's just different parts of this one, one theme. And so I'd like to speak first of all um, about God as spirit. That is God, the Holy Spirit. And it might be obvious to some of you why I would start on such a thing, but there is a, there's a, a, a connection with what we've just read. It starts off, and it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, some of you will have recognized this from the New Testament where it is quoted. And so if you, if you flip over in your Bibles to Acts and chapter 2. So if you go to Acts chapter 2, we find there that... Well, we have this strange occurrence of people having a miraculous gift whereby they could speak foreign languages that they had not learned. 
Acts 2 and verse 15, we shall start. So Peter's addressing these people who've, who've said, well, all these people speaking in funny languages must be drunk, of course. And Peter says, verse 15, these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it's but the, the third hour of the day. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and so on. And the sun shall be turned, verse 20, into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so, Peter brings this in and interprets Joel as referring to this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This, it's it's uh, to Peter. This is the bringing in of something very unique. It is the eschaton. This period we've been in for 2,000 years. And this is what they call the eschaton. It's, uh, it's where we get eschatology from and the doctrine of last things. So if you come across eschatology and you're not familiar with it, you can remember it's about last things. And this period is marked by the presence of the Spirit in a very unique way. And I remember I was, brought, I was reminded about Moses because one day Moses uh, was approached by think someone had gone to Joshua and Joshua came to Moses and uh, people were, a couple of guys were prophesying but not, they weren't, in, you know, they weren't in the right place or something, it was something to do with church order, you know, so Joshua goes, well this is very important and Moses uh, was like, uh, this is not very important at all, he says I wish all people would be prophets, not just these, I wish everyone was a prophet, I wish everyone had the spirit poured out on them, uh, that's what Moses said. Because Moses, I think, understood that for the Spirit to be poured out so abundantly, that, that was significant. That was an indicator of something, something unique and special happening with, with God. So this uh, Pentecost then, when this outpouring of the Spirit took place, this was, this was just a, a brand new era being introduced. And God used this very impressive, this, uh, this explosion of miraculous uh, actions and behaviours. God used this explosion of behaviours to really uh, almost launch, if you like, this new age that we are in. Uh, my own view, don't shout at me, my own view is that, that those uh, miracles were meant to be temporary so we had I've mentioned the, the ability to speak languages immediately without learning them there were words of knowledge in other words direct communication into the mind which would then relate to the people healing of people physically by, by, by touching and so on and all these things, I believe, were temporary and necessary uh, for this launch, if you like. And then that was itself a trigger for other, other things that came 
Uh, afterwards, the, 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 the Christian church was now born properly. And if you like, God closed the book on the old to bring in the new. And so he closed the book in terms of animal sacrifices and mosaic law. Uh, uh, the temple worship, that was all old. Old Jerusalem, there was now a new Jerusalem. There was old Israel, there's now something else. And God shuts that book and puts it on the shelf on the history section. And his remaining interest in those people, flesh and blood Israelites, his remaining interest is only that he has his elect people within there. And he will seek them out and he will save them. But this was something amazing going on. And there was this expansion whereby the gospel was taken out into the world. And it says that, you know, we're all flesh. All flesh will be saved. In the New Testament, all Israel, uh, all Israel is saved. But it's explained that Israel now is redefined. And so, yes, every member of this Israel, whatever it is, will be saved. And I believe that refers to God's elect people. Every single one will be saved. But, in any case, this is a glorious era that has been launched. And it's universal. If you look back in, look, go back to uh, Joel. Joel and we look at verses 8 and, um, 28 and 29. Now it says, as I read it, it says there's, there's sons and daughters, so a mixture of the sexes there. Um, it's got old and young, so different ages. It includes, it includes uh, servants and so on. And so it's really stressing here the, the universal nature of this, this work of God. And as this gospel goes out, what goes with it is a command. It's a command of God. God commands men to, and women to repent. So this is what we say. This is what we say to sinners. We go out and we tell them that God... It commands them to repent of their sin. And that to trust in the person we describe, Jesus Christ, who was put on a tree, effectively, and by that became cursed. He became cursed for sinners, even though he was sinless. And so we tell people to trust in that person, Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah who became the saviour of the world. And like some of us today, there's the promise then of forgiveness of all sins. The same forgiveness, the same gift of eternal life. One of, my, uh, one of the hymns I really like is by Joseph Hart. He, Come ye sinners, do you remember that one? He writes in, come ye sinners, poor and needy, he, he, he writes this line, 
concerning Christ, he says, venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. Let no other trust intrude. And so we tell people that they are to abandon any hope of acceptance by any other means than absolute trust in Christ Jesus. I thought I should add this, uh, this little note from verse uh, 32. Right at the very end of chapter 2, it says, There shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant, whom the Lord shall call. Whom the Lord shall call. So as a reminder to us, man is incapable of saving himself. Man's will is messed up such that he will never choose God of his own volition. So when we finished with our persuasive arguments and our grand rhetoric and our fancy words and our passion and enthusiasm, that person can still not trust in Christ. What does it take? Well, the scriptures tell us that God himself has to reel that person in and bring them to Christ, else they will never, never trust in Christ. No man will come to Christ unless the Father draws him. And why that's related to this section on God as Holy Spirit is that when God decides to save someone, he imparts his spirit to that person and grants them repentance and faith. And I can only conclude that if God wanted desperately to save every man and woman, he would give them his spirit and they would all be saved. And this is why, this is why I, you will never hear me preaching to sinners and using that uh, terminology. I, I won't say, God really wants to save you, but you need to let him. I, I, just, I, just, I just won't use that sort of language. I think that misleads uh, somewhat because God is sovereign in all these things. Well, We have this launch of the New Testament church, if you like, this new era. And we find ourselves in this age now, this age of the gospel, this age of the, the kingdom of God. And just like all God's people throughout history, we have enemies. We find that we go through life and we have enemies. Now, in the beginning of chapter 3, it mentions Judah and Jerusalem. And then later in verse 19, you'll see mention of Edom and Egypt. Now, regardless of the application to those real entities back in the day, these are put for something else. Judah and Jerusalem are to be understood as representing the people of God today. And we know who the people of God are today. It's not Jews, Muslims, dare I say Catholics either. It is, it is genuine born again Christians. 
And in the same way in verse 19, Edom and Egypt, just like Tyre and Sidon and all the others, they are put for God's enemies. If you read uh, Obadiah, you'll find, I think, in Obadiah, uh, he picks on, God picks on uh, Edom. And Edom there is representative of all God's enemies. Revelation makes reference to Sodom and Egypt. Not so you will think of those places, but so you will think of what they represent. Now, that being the case, it makes it all relevant to us. It makes this relevant to us because there is deliverance and there is vengeance going on here. And uh, we, you'll remember my description, such as it was, of this destruction of the locust army. Remember the locust army and then God um, swept them out to sea and killed them? He called them my army uh, that he raised up and then he destroyed them. Or rather, there was the promise they'd be destroyed upon their repentance. And uh, if you look at verse 9 now in chapter 3, in verse 9, It was the beginning of this address to the nations. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Now this is God, if you like, speaking to the nations of this world, his enemies, and commanding them to get in line, get in ranks, form an army in opposition to me, he says. He's forcing them to become a visible army, if you like, and this should strike fear into the hearts of God's enemies because of what he did to the locusts. There was absolute, uh, complete uh, destruction there. And now he's telling the nations of this world to form themselves into an army. They should be fearful of that. Joel takes a second to speak to God in verse 11 there. And he says, Lord, you know, bring your warriors down. Bring your warriors down. We can, we can perhaps think he was referring to the, the hosts of angel, angel forces. Uh, the host of angels in heaven. Joel's saying, Lord, bring them down into the battle. And so we have this powerful imagery then of all this, uh, this uh, great uh, battle. Now, these things, this, this, this idea of warfare is obviously something that is uh, in every generation to an extent. We, we, we ourselves are involved in warfare now. Might not feel like it, but that's either because God's blessed you with a, a distinct lack of persecution, uh, either that or there is a battle and you're just not in it at the moment. Maybe that's it. But certainly, this is, this is uh, current. But having said that, there's, uh, I'm tempted to say there is also an, uh, uh, an end time reference here as well. By end times, I don't mean the end times we're in now. I mean the end of history. That sort of end of the end times, if you like. And because in verse 12 there, we, we, we see that it talks about 
the heathen being woke up. Verse 12, is it? Yeah. Let the heathen be wakened. And so it might remind you of, of the references in the New Testament where God is going to raise the dead, including all the wicked. He will raise them all from the dead. And, well, the purpose of that is judgment. The purpose of the, God raising the people from the dead is for judgment. And so, one of the... Uh, one of the things that struck me in this is very, it's a very small reference, but it says that to, to start with, um, God's enemies are commanded to form this army. It's as if God is forcing them to uh, show themselves, show themselves as his enemies, whereas before, they were hiding away in their opposition. It's as if God's saying, come out of the woodwork. If you want to fight, align yourselves on a battlefield and fight. It's showing them what they have always been a part of. But what struck me in verse, uh, into verse um, 10, chapter 3. Let the weak say, I am strong. So that doesn't sound very significant or important. Let the weak say, I am strong. Or let the weak say, I am a warrior. So in a real, in a real war, the, the, the sort of weak people, the, the very young people, the people who are scared, will not want to join in. And God is saying here that they need to be brought in too. The weak ones need to be included in this. To me, it's almost as if there's, these, there's this body of mild-mannered people in this world who are still rebels against God, but are so polite and respectful of Christianity that they don't appear to be God's enemies at all. But God knows they are his enemies, which is why he tells them, Pick that sword up. Get in line. You are just as much a rebel against me as any of these are. Pick that sword up. And it's quite, it made, it made me think really about uh, our friends and our relatives even, right? Now think about those friends and relatives who, are, who say, I respect your faith. Okay? Well, that's nice, isn't it? I'd rather they respected my faith than give me abuse or throw something at me. I respect your faith. I wish I had your faith. Some of them are even believe in God. Some of them believe in God to an extent and say nice things about God. But the truth is, folks, that if we can just detach ourselves emotionally, it's easy for a bloke. Detach ourselves emotionally, stand back and realise that... If they are not with God, they are against him. You're not for me, you're against me. No matter how mild-mannered or polite or respectable you are. And God says to these mild-mannered people, so far you haven't even had the courage to admit your rebellion. 
you prefer to hide behind this mask of politeness. Well, where's all this going? Verse 12 of chapter 3. Verse 12. Come down all these troops. God says to these troops, these enemies, this is where it's going to happen, the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, you won't find the valley of Jehoshaphat if you go looking for it in the Middle East. You won't find it in the Bible anywhere either. I suggest you don't pursue that. Instead, we realise significantly that the word, the name, Jehoshaphat means judgment. And so this is the valley of judgment God is bringing them to. And just in a couple of verses later, God calls it the valley of decision. It's the same idea. Judgment, decision. You see how we, we started with the imagery of war and now it's turned into this is a giant courtroom and God is sitting on a throne to, to uh, bring judgment in and to make a decision on these people. We have warfare imagery. You also will have noticed references to the wine press. References to getting the sickle and going in with the, with the sickle and cutting them down. Now, of course, God's vengeance is, is worse than anything we can picture. But at least the way these symbols are all mixed up and used so freely should show us that we're not to pursue any thoughts of this being literal. We're not looking in the end times for sickles, giant sickles, God stomping on people, uh, God fighting armies that have tanks and so on. This is all, this is all imagery. But certainly God's vengeance will be carried out and we will be vindicated. We will be justified by God. I just want to say a few words briefly about God then as our refuge. Mentioned the verse 16 of chapter 3, Mount Zion. Mount Zion. We can't go to Mount Zion. We can't get on a plane and travel and go to Mount Zion because of what Mount Zion is. God, Mount Zion is the place where God dwells and all his people all over the world dwell right now. Mount Zion. Right? God is there. And this leads us to think of God as our refuge, a place of safety. If I can uh, carry on this uh, symbols, this metaphor of the, the, uh, the battles, the, the warfare, if I can carry that on, it's almost as if God has all his people in this castle, in this huge fortress, and the battle that goes on is on the plains beneath us and we can uh, watch we can watch the Lord destroy his enemies from the safety of the, the, the battlements of this castle it says in um, Psalm uh, 46 you'll, you'll, you'll recognise this one because it's, it's oft, uh, oft quoted the beginning of Psalm 46 God is our refuge 
and strength, a very present help in trouble. Perhaps you'd like to, um, if you feel like it, you can turn to Nahum. So Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And if you look in Nahum, at the very beginning in uh, verse uh, 7 of the first chapter in Nahum, it says something slightly more specific there. It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust him. The Lord's good, he's a stronghold to keep us safe. And he knows them that trust in him. He knows them. Now, uh, you may be aware that, that this word knowledge usually carries more with it than a mere uh, awareness of somebody. One of the judgment pictures in the last day, Christ is judging the people. And on this side, he, he, he knows them. He loves them. They, they get to go into everlasting life. And this crowd on the left is a group that claims oh, what, what they've done for the Lord. They've done this. They've done that. They've, oh, everything's covered. They've done miraculous things as well. And Christ says, I, I never knew you. I never knew you. Christ was aware of their existence. Christ knew everything they'd done throughout their lives. But he didn't know them in that relationship sense because the knowledge here refers to love. Love. And it tells us that we're not only in God's refuge, but he loves us while we're there. He does not just provide safety. He actually loves us. I can't tell you what the meaning of God's love is. I mean, we might think, well, God's too high. And perfect to experience that fickle thing that we call love. Well, I know some theologians would deny that God loves in any way that we can relate to. But I prefer to think of it that God's love is like ours. Except ours is, is corrupted and messed up and imperfect. Whereas whatever it is in God is perfect. But it is still love. It is still a love like we know it, but more intense and more perfect. God is our fortress. Elsewhere, elsewhere, well, he's described as the temple. God is the temple. And so we, we exist then from then on in the temple, which is God. We serve him in the temple, which is himself. But elsewhere in Corinthians, it speaks of the church being the temple and God living in the people as, as his temple. It, it mixes that up. God in us, we in God, is, 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 is the point of all this. Well, like I said before, I said, you know, that... Uh, a lot of what we're talking about today is uh, it's a present day reality. But we come back again to this foreshadowing of the climax of it all. The climax of it all. And 
if you had your Bible still open at Nahum and you go back a few pages, you'll come to Micah. Oops. Come to Micah. Just a few pages. You'll come to Micah in chapter 4. In Micah in chapter 4 and verse 3 says and he God shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nations shall not lift up a sword against nation neither shall they learn war any more so, the great irony in all this is that as God's enemies are told to take all those tools and implements associated with peacetime activity, farming equipment, melt them down, melt them down and make them into swords because they need to, because they've got to meet God in battle. So the irony is that as they are preparing to make this weaponry. The Lord's people are doing the exact opposite. The Lord's people are taking their weapons of warfare and instead, in the imagery here, converting them back into useful tools that we associate with peacetime work. And so our weapons go back into sickles and uh, plowshares I don't even know what a plowshare is but it's something to do with farming anyway the point about that is that in the last day as this uh, this battle if you like is going on the Lord's people have come to the end of their warfare <laughs> the end of their warfare Wow, our warfare, friends, is coming to an end. And there will be a day when we don't need our armour anymore. We don't need our armour. We've used it for the very last time. And it can be removed. We can lay down our arms once and for all. And there'll be no, no more conflict with sin within Satan, the world, all that conflict will be ended. There'll be no difference of opinion between God's people. That would be marvellous. There will be absolute harmony in the church of God. God is our refuge, friends, and we will be with him. And we will be with the saints as well uh, forever. Praise his name. Amen.